Welcome to the Talking the Talk podcast, where we'll be exploring items of automotive technology and their journey into mass production. I'm Kevin Reed, the founder of Ireland Made, where we celebrate stories of Irish transport past and present, and this is our podcast. I'm delighted to welcome my co-host, automotive engineering consultant, Mike Keane. Mike's consultancy delivers bespoke and sustainable transport solutions, and previously Mike has led vehicle development programs for Ford, Williams Formula One Advanced Engineering, Nissan, Jaguar, Land Rover, and Aston Martin. Mike has also worked on projects as diverse as hybrid supercars to off-road electric vehicles. But what is most impressive for me, Mike worked on the James Bond movie Spectre, and he worked on the baddies car, the Jaguar CX-75. In each episode, we're going to be examining vehicles that range from the 1921 German Rumpfler right up to what Tesla and Lucid are doing today. In our last episode, we explored braking systems, and today, in episode six, Mike and I are exploring trendsetters and game changers in automotive industry. Yeah, Mike, um, we're going to take a different tack this week, actually. So up until now, we've discussed cars that brought a piece of technology into mass production. This week, we're going to just have a more of a general look at the cars that played a big part in automotive history. So they didn't necessarily bring a technology in, but they were very influential. And where we normally try to walk through cars chronologically, this week, we're going to kind of, going to group them a little bit more. Sounds interesting, Mike. Where do we start? Well, uh, we're going to skip over some of the earliest period, actually. And that's because... In one sense, you know, a lot of the earliest cars were actually all trendsetters. So as a new technology was developed and trailed successfully, it would then be picked up by all of the other companies. So in that early period, there was a lot of, a lot of churn, a lot of change, a lot of kind of what you'd call trendsetters. Um, we're going to jump forward a little bit. But before we do, there is one area that I want to talk about a little bit, and that's driver controls. Right. So driver controls, obviously, it's steering wheel and pedals. Yeah, exactly. Steering wheel and pedals. So when we get into a car today, we expect that all of the major controls will work in the same way and be more or less in the same place. So we expect that the steering wheel is in front of us and it rotates left and right. We expect that the throttle pedal is on the right hand side, the brake pedal is in the center. And if we're driving a car with a manual transmission, that the, the clutch is on the left hand side. But it actually took quite some time for that layout to become standard. That's what I love about our conversations. The things that we take for granted, that it's a standard layout within the car, you're about to explain, took so long to happen. But surely the steering wheel was always used to control a car. From early stage, but not from the very start, actually. So the very first cars use a tiller. So um, just like you'd have on a small boat, so a single beam tiller often in front of the, in front of the driver. And it was 1894 that Panhard of what we would now recognize as a steering wheel on their four horsepower model. And then they kept that through on all panhards afterwards and it started to become um, uh, popularly introduced into other cars as well. I'm thinking about how I, when you steer a car, it's so intuitive. Using a tiller and a, a tiller sitting in front of you, <laughs> it's just not intuitive at all. Absolutely. So steering wheel, tell us about pedals. <laughs> so where the steering wheel came in quite early, pedals actually, pedal arrangement we just talked about, that took quite a long time to settle into, you know, that what we what we expect today. The first car that had the three pedals that operate throttle brake clutch was in 1916, and it was a Cadillac Type 53. So hang on, you're saying the first three pedals operating that, were they in a different layout before that? 
Yeah, Kevin, not, not only were they in a different order or a different layout, they actually did a different job. They had a different purpose. Oh. So if you take a Ford Model T, and Ford Model T sold in millions, very popular car, and it had three pedals, but they did different things to what uh, we would expect today. So the left-hand pedal was the clutch. That's the same. The right-hand pedal was the brake, and the central pedal actually engaged reverse. And then the throttle was on a lever behind the steering wheel, but also behind the steering wheel was another lever for carburetor adjustment and another lever for spark adjustment. So what we would think of as quite a complicated setup, but as you say, they sold millions and it was the accepted norm. So was the Model T Ford then, was that the first, what we would consider mass-produced car? It's, it's often considered to be the first mass-produced, but technically it wasn't. You can actually go right back to 1901, and there was a car called an Oldsmobile Curved Dash, and there were 19,000 of them built, which are significant numbers. But the thing about the Model T is you can make a very strong argument that it actually was the car that made car ownership accessible to millions, and it probably is the car that got you know millions of Americans on the road. Launched in 1908, 15 million of them were built before they stopped production in 1927. And the other thing with the Model T, so rather than being the first car that was mass produced, it was the first car that was mass produced or produced on a moving assembly line. So until that point, cars were built at individual stations. You'd have one or two build technicians working on the car. They would bring the parts of the car and assemble them. And then in 1913, which is five years after the Model T had started production, Henry Ford introduced the moving assembly line. So now at this point, the cars now move to the workers. So the car moves along a constant track. And as it reaches the next station, or as it passes by the next station, the worker assembles the components onto the car, and the car keeps moving on to the subsequent station. And that, in effect, is how cars are built today. So it's it's heavily automated with robots, but it's the same principle. The car just... Ca- Constantly travels around on the track. Oh, so it's a it's a very it's it's a tried and tested system. It, it's very interesting to me that that after five years of building the Model Ts, beginning in 1913, only then did they introduce the moving tracks. So my presumption is it reduced time massively, massively. So the Model Ts that were built up until it was introduced, so the first five years took 12 hours per car to build, and after he introduced the moving track. Each individual Model T took one and a half hours. So it was a huge drop. And then that, that drop in production time meant that labor costs were dropped. And then therefore the price of the car was dropped, which helped, helped to sell it in millions. And then that allows us to think of that being mobility for the masses, that the masses could get their hands on cheap automobiles. Yeah, that's right. So we think of this idea of, you know, this time when not everybody had cars, you know, cars that are more accessible and get more people going are, are uh, mobility for the masses. And the next car I kind of think of in that category is the Austin 7 from the UK. It didn't sell in the same quantity. So it it sold 300,000 units, but its influence is very significant. It was cheap to drive. It was reliable to drive, reliable or easy to work on. After that Cadillac in 1916, it was actually the first mass produced car with the pedals in the arrangement we think of today, accelerator, brake and clutch. It was also the first BMW and the first Nissan. So the Austin 7 was licensed to BMW and licensed to Nissan and was built in Germany and uh, and Japan, respectively, uh, as the first cars out of those companies. I'm glad you explained that because I was going to say, hang on, did he just say the first BMW and the first yeah. Nissan? Right? That's far right. Away, far away. Yeah. 
And the other thing with the Austin 7 is you can see that it had a very big influence on motorsport. So because Austin 7s were easy to get hold of and they're easy to work on, um, it created a category called the Austin 7 Special. So basically home-built racing cars made from the components of Austin 7s. And a very high number of drivers or racing car teams or companies in the UK in the 50s started in Austin with Austin 7s. So just to pick two, the very first Lotus cars were built were Austin 7s. And the very first car that Bruce McLaren built himself, him becoming the founder of McLaren Formula One, was also an Austin 7. Wow, very interesting. So by mass mobility, we're talking about the cars that got a lot of people on the road. The VW Beetle is an obvious example. Yeah, fantastic example. 21 million cars built. Um, started in 1938, right up until 2003, it was still being built in, in Brazil and, and Mexico. It's well known that Hitler wanted a, a people's car, and that's where the name Volkswagen Volkswagen comes from, people's car. So really, again, simple, cheap to build, which means that the price is low, robust for, um, to use. It had a, a press steel chassis, rear-mounted air-cooled engine. We talked about that in uh, quite a few times in the aerodynamics and, and the powertrain cooling conversation. And it also had a, a very tough and simple torsion beam from suspension. And let's not forget our Irish connection, because Ireland was the first country outside of Germany to assemble Beatles, assembled here in Dublin. Um, and we also covered that on Ireland Made, so have a look at some of our videos there. What other cars would we recognise for mass mobility? Okay, so for mass mobility, again, I, I kind of think about mass mobility as cars from sort of 1930s, 40s, 50s, where you couldn't assume that everybody had a car. So, you know, it really, these are cars that made car ownership possible for people. Sort of by the 60s, it was a little bit more common. And you could kind of assume that there were, you know, more or less one car per household, more or less. So um, in the 40s and 50s, then each country that produced cars, you kind of have, you can pick a model almost from each country. So in France, you have the Citroën 2CV. In Italy, there's the Fiat 500, which is also sold in Spain as the Seat um, uh, 500. I'm also going to choose the Fiat 124. And the Fiat 124 itself was, you know, it was a nice car, popular car, but you certainly wouldn't put it in the category of the Fiat 500. The reason I choose it, so it was also licensed as a Seat in Spain and licenses in Europe and Turkey. And again, sold in reasonable numbers, but nothing extraordinary. But the variant that massively outsold the original version was when Fiat licensed it to the Russian company Vaz, or Lada, as it's known outside of Russia. And that ladder shape that we all think of, that three box design, was actually the Fiat 124. And over 17 million of them were built. Absolutely huge. And again, staying with Eastern Bloc countries, the Trabant 601 of East Germany, there was nearly 3 million of those built. So again, these are all cars sold in massive numbers and really helped to get um, people driving. Get people wow. Out. Because I knew that I knew that had been licensed to Lada. I didn't realize they sold 17 million of them. That's incredible. Can I just get you to touch on something? You described it as being a three-box car. What does that mean in this context? Yeah. So um maybe you might remember from our styling conversation, I, I used that description as well. So if you look at the side of a car, three-box car is almost if you ask a child to draw to draw a car, it's what they would draw, right? So you think of it has a box to represent the bonnet sticking at the front and there's a box to represent the boots against the back and a box to represent where the the, the the occupant cabin is. So a lot of those cars in the 1960s, they had, you know, very shallow curves, almost looked like straight lines and you could almost draw them with sort of three boxes. And that's where that, that 
And I give it two blocks of income. That's grab, right. Have you now? So obvious next step from us is the mini. Tell me about the original mini. Yeah, the mini's kind of probably my favorite of all the mass mobility cars. Um, launched in 1959, built right up until production closed in 2000, sold five and a half million, you know, strong numbers, nowhere as high production numbers as the likes of the um, Lada or the Beetle. But the reason it's my favorite, kind of my choice for mass mobility, it's the influence it had on car design and small car design, very significant. Okay, and what, what specifically was that, that uh, influence? Well, a number of things. So it was the first front-wheel drive car that had a transverse engine layout. And that layout is really the preferred layout of nearly all combustion cars today. And you can argue that it's the layout of electric cars today as well. Oh, you're going to have to explain that one. Well, okay, so front-wheel drive, I think that's that's obvious, right? So the, the front wheels are the driven wheels. Transverse engine means that the crankshaft and therefore the orientation of the engine runs across the car. So it's it's pointing side to side or east to west, as opposed to running longitudinally and pointing front and rear of the car. And that means that the engine takes up less space in the front of the car, so the car can be shorter. It also means that the the drive shafts are in line with the wheels. And that's why I say that I think you can argue it's the same layout for an electric vehicle as well, because the output shaft from motors of electric vehicles are typically in line with the wheels as well. Right. So by concentrating everything as such under the hood, under the bonnet, it gave you a massive amount of space saving in the rest of the vehicle. Yeah. Alec Asiginus was the chief engineer. He really went through all of the aspects of car design and came up with alternative um, ideas for how he can do a smaller version of it. So Instead of springs and suspension, he had rubber cones. He designed the car to have 10-inch wheels, which actually meant that Dunlop, the tire company, had to make specially designed 10-inch tires. The transmission, the gearbox, shared its oil with the, with the engine. And even if you look at the side windows, the, the side windows slid open rather than opening up and down um, with winders, and that allowed the doors to be slimmer. And then if you, if you, if you think of a, one other... Um, you know, there was a lot of nice little features in it. So the boot lid hinged from the bottom. So when it opened, it acted like a big tray. And if you had large items, you could you could sit them on that tray. And in fact, when it was open, the number plate hinged down as well. So you could still see the registration plate. Brilliant. Highly innovative. Um, what's also highly, highly innovative, didn't the chief engineer build the side door with a pocket that was deep enough to carry a handy bottle of whiskey? That's exactly right. Yeah, they did. They needed to put stiffeners on the door because they had this slimline door. And they, 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 they realized that if they curved the stiffeners outward, they could create a pocket uh, in the door. And yeah, Alec Siganus, yeah, he, uh, he was a whiskey fan. So he designed the pockets specifically to design his favorite bottle of whiskey. Very good. So let's claim Ireland's Paddy Hopkirk. He won the Monte Carlo Rally in a mini. Uh, and then again, as we're sticking with Rally Car Heritage, would you consider the Escort to be a mass mobility car? Well, kind of, there's no real hard and fast rules for what mass mobility is here, actually. Um, so the Escort's very popular, um, but it's maybe more accurately described as a world car along with the line, the likes of the Toyota Corolla or the, the Honda Civic. Um, again, kind of thinking of mass mobility as being cars in the 40s and 50s when not everybody had cars. The other thing with the Escort and the Civic and the Corolla is the model name lasted a long time, but it straddled multiple generations. So in reality, there's nothing in common with, between 
a Mark One Escort and a Mark Five Escort, or between a Mark One Corolla and a current Corolla. There's nothing in common with those cars. Whereas the Mini and the Beetle, although they had variants and, and they were, there were developments, you can clearly see how the first cars were related to the last cars. Interesting. Right. Any other world cars? Yeah. Was, so like a lot of manufacturers created world cars. So basically a car that's designed that they can sell the same car in multiple jurisdictions, as opposed to having a different design in different jurisdictions. But one thing I, I quite like, I'm going to pick it out. It's a bit of an obscure one. Um, but I like it because I like the story, which is the Hillman Avenger or Chrysler Avenger. So in 1970, the Chrysler Group bought the British Roots Group. And the British Roots Group included uh, companies like the Hillman, like Hillman, Humber, Sunbeam. At the same time, Chrysler bought the French company Simca and they inherited the Talbot batch. The Roots Group had already developed the Avenger. And Chrysler Group said about making it their, their world car sort of to rival the Escort. But unlike the Escort, which was always named the Ford Escort, the Avenger was sold all over the world, but it was sold under different names. In fact, it was sold under 12 different car names, like make and model, such as Chrysler Avenger, Hillman Avenger, Dodge Avenger, Plymouth Cricket, Sunbeam 1300. And, and and many of those twelve different names, and I, I just I just like that kind of uh, lack of commonality. That's mad. Twelve different car badges for the same car. That's absolutely brilliant. So, Mike, take us back to trendsetters and game changers. What else? Yeah. Okay. So, if we look at uh, trendsetters and game changers, I give you three different cars. So, the nineteen forty nine Land Rover, the nineteen sixty five Ford Mustang, and the nineteen eighty four Renault Espace. Each one is a totally different category. Each one is totally different, yet they all have something in common. And that's that each one of them introduced a category to the buying public that hadn't existed before. So was Land Rover considered as a 4x4 category? Yeah, it was a 4x4 category. So like we'd recognize that today, there were 4x4s before the Land Rover, you know, military, agricultural, there's even a few on the road. The most obvious or most notable one probably being the Wiley's Jeep from World War II that you would recognize. But the Land Rover was the first one to take that off-road ability and combine it into a car that um, was capable on the road as well or could be used as a passenger car on the road. Now, I know owners of Land Rovers might argue of the, the comfort levels of it as a, as a passenger car, but it was road capable. And, and it did create this new category of road cars that had 4x4 capability. Um, Jeep, the Wiley's Jeep, that uh, World War II car, there was a passenger version of that created and then followed up by the Jeep Gladiator. And then staying in the US, you have the Ford Bronco and the International Harvester Scout. So in Europe, we tend to think of International as a tractor manufacturer, but in the US, they, they also built a, a 4x4 car. And then coming out of Japan, you know, we'd obviously think about the likes of the Toyota Land Cruiser or the car that ultimately became the, the Nissan Patrol. Excellent. So sports utility vehicles, as we know them today, they're very popular. Yeah, absolutely. So the next um, evolution of those 4x4s then was really in 1970 when the Range Rover was uh, launched. So Range Rover, again, it took all of that off-road capability, but it then combined it with a very high level of road holding and a high level of what we call NVH. So NVH means noise, vibration, harsh, harshness. It's an attribute set that, um, in vehicle engineering that looks specifically at, as it says, the noise, the vibration or the harshness 
and it engineers these out of the cars and actually sets performance targets for what's acceptable and what's not. So it took what is essentially an agricultural vehicle and made it a very plush vehicle. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's right. And we think of SUVs SUVs today as being kind of quite upmarket vehicles usually. Um, there's one there's one notable exception in that, and that's the Suzuki Jimny, which is, you know, it's an absolute giant killer, you know, where normally SUVs are very large, quite heavy, big, powerful engines. The Suzuki Jimny is the, went the opposite direction. It's a very light car. Mass is about 1,200 kilos on the road. Small capacity engines around one litre, two-wheel drive, but punches well above its, uh, its weight. Very, very capable. I think what you're trying to say is the Jimny just kind of glides across the mud and ruts. That's what you're trying to say. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So let, let's continue your list, Mike. Thank you. The Ford Mustang. Yeah, Ford Mustang. So the Ford Mustang, we think of it as being the car that we introduced uh, what's called the pony car category. So in fact, named after the Mustang, you know, a Mustang being a type of horse. So these are front-engined, stylish coupes or convertibles with a long bonnet line, a long hood, and a short boot lid. And they were built either on the platform of a saloon car or using a very high number of components from a saloon car. And the Mustang really kick-started that segment. So, you know, following on from the Mustang, there's a number of pony cars, the Chevrolet Camaro, AMC Javelin, Dodge Challenger. I say kickstarted deliberately. And even though the pony car category is named after the Mustang, it actually was not the first one. So the very first car was the Plymouth Barracuda, which was launched two weeks before the Mustang. But the Mustang was far more successful and it did a lot more to sort of bring this segment to the public's awareness. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is why we have automotive consultant Mike Keane on this podcast, because he's able to tell you things about the Plymouth Barracuda being launched two weeks before the Mustang. <laughs> right. <laughs> now, were there other pony car variants outside of the USA? Yeah. So it's, a, it's a, an American concept, but it was very quickly brought outside of the US. So Ford of Europe. So we had the Capri. So based on the Cortina, General Motors. Uh, with the Opel had the Manta, which is based on the Ascona, and Vauxhall had the Forenza. And even in Japan then, so Toyota launched the Celica, which is um, a coupe, very much looks like a, a, a Mark One Mustang, and it's based on the Carina. Okay, excellent. Now, let's go to the third vehicle on your list of three, the Renault Espace, the multi-purpose vehicle, MPV. Yeah, so, you know, when you think about how ubiquitous MPVs are now, they're, you know, they're everywhere, you know, probably the majority of cars are MPVs now. The Espace was the car that introduced that concept to Europe. So similar to, I guess, similar to the Plymouth Barracuda getting there ahead of the Mustang, the Dodge Caravan was released in the US just very shortly, just a matter of months before the Espace was, was released. It is an MPV. I tend to think of the Dodge Caravan as being a bit more van-like, where the Espace is very pure to the concept of an MPV. So what do I mean by that? So it's a single occupant volume. So the driver and front passenger are in the same shared space as the, as the rear passengers. It's, they, they all sit on a common floor at the same level and it has car proportions. So it fits within a standard parking space or even within a, a standard garage. The SPAS was, was a concept that was developed by Matra but it wasn't followed up or wasn't pursued by Peugeot Citroën. They decided not to go to production with it, Peugeot Citroën being the owners of Matra. So Matra then sold the design to Renault and Renault launched in, in 84 and it became, very quickly became one of the most popular, popular vehicles. And were Matra an indigenous French company? Yeah, a small French company. 
um, created some really interesting cars, actually. And in fact, in terms of this conversation, Kevin, in terms of trendsetters, they, they actually tick quite a few of our boxes here. So the predecessor to the Espace, so the Espace is an unusual car, the predecessor was also unusual, it was, it was the Rancho. Wow. So, yeah, yeah the Rancho, yeah. So off the back of the popularity of the Range Rover, there was this sort of demand for what we now think of as lifestyle cars. So cars that have a nod towards an off-road capability and sort of a nod towards adventure. So the Rancher was a, was a small two-wheel drive estate with a small capacity engine, but it had these sort of rugged off-road looks. Now, uh, it was it was it did quite well in France, sold quite a few of them. It was radical as a concept for its time, and it, and it wasn't wasn't really copied anywhere. So sort of two years later. In America, AMC launched the Eagle, but you know we couldn't really say it was a copy, but you know of the of the the Matra because there were sort of two different jurisdictions. But now we would call that a crossover, and now it's a very very common uh, and popular category of car. So cars like the Volkswagen T Rock now are cars that are you know more deliberately rugged looking, like the Citroen Cactus. So they're all cactuses, and or, so they're all crossovers, and you can you can see the Matra Rancho in those. Like I can remember the rancher we used to see it on holiday as kids, and it looked as mean as anything. It could, it could drive across the Kalahari, and it was a two-wheel drive estate. That's right. <laughs> yeah. It was the first they did it in lime green and orange, and the maddest colors I'd ever seen on cars. Absolutely That's brilliant. So, Matra, what other trendsetter boxes did the company tick? Yeah, so I'll pick one more from Matra. So, the 1962 Matra GS. So, it's you could say it was the first mid-engine sports car. So a mid-engine layout, it's sometimes confused with a rear-engine layout. So they're different things. So in both cases, the engine and the transmission are behind the cabin. So if you think of it, sports car with two seats, so the engine's behind the cabin. But in a mid-engine layout, the engine, and therefore the mass, is ahead of the axle line. Whereas in a rear-engine car, it's over the axle line. Indeed, sometimes it's slightly behind the axle line. And by putting the mass in ahead of the rear axle line, it's really good for vehicle dynamics because it centralizes the mass and it reduces what's called the polar moment of inertia. So polar moment of inertia, a really good example of that is if you think of a figure skater spinning on ice. So they spin on ice, their arms are out, and they can spin it quite quickly. If they bring their arms, and you see them do this all the time, they bring their arms in close to their body, bring their legs in close together, they suddenly increase in speed. Their spin rate increases. Now they haven't added any any extra movement to that it's simply by bringing that mass in centrally it increases the speed of the spin and the same principle is in cars so by centralizing the mass of the vehicle it has the same effect and it allows the cars to, to rapidly change direction fascinating fascinating so what other cars are mid-engined well believe it or not kevin actually if you go back to you know our nearly our very first car the rumpler trumpfenwagen rumpler trumpfenwagen yes yeah it's great we just love seeing that so that was that was technically a mid-engine car, but actually, um, I think the you know the 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 real headliner here is the Lamborghini Miura. So it's the first supercar with a mid-engine layout, and that's the layout that like nearly all supercars would have today. Excellent. So let's continue our list: trendsetters and game changers. What else do you have? Okay, I'm going to pick two from Ford. Right. So the Transit. Um, so the Transit was launched in '68. And it was designed to have car-like comfort. So up until that point, delivery vans like the Ford Thames went before, they were you know, pretty utilitarian, weren't necessarily comfortable with vehicles to drive all day long. And the Transit was designed to have car-like comfort, comfortable seats, 
a steering wheel in a in a in an almost vertical position like you'd have in a car. And one particular design specification is that um, it was designed to be able to take an eight foot builder's wooden plank flat in the load bed, and that was on the specification sheet for it. So it was really a it was a game changer in terms of comfort and capability for van operators who are you know you know this is the this is an this is your office if you drive a van. And then the other Ford I'm going to talk about is the Mark One Focus from 1998. Not a car that people think of as being a game changer, but I, but personally for me, I think it was absolutely a game changer in terms of the handling capability of a small front wheel drive car. So launched in 1980, sorry 1998. I don't think that at that point there was any other front wheel drive car in the B, C, or D class of car. So the, the focus being a C class of car that really could compete in terms of um, combined ride and handling. So it was absolutely a, a real a real sleeper in terms of handling capability. Okay, so let's discuss electric cars in terms of being trendsetters and game changers. Yeah, so in a later episode, we're going to talk about the development of electric powertrains. And in that one, we'll discuss in more detail cars like the, you know, really, really, really remarkable GM EV1 or the Tesla Roadster. But in terms of game changers and what, what, what kind of we're framing as game changers today, I just think the Toyota Prius and the Nissan Leaf are the game changers here. So the Prius was the first mass-produced hybrid. So it made hybrid powertrains sort of commonplace. And it also introduced to the buying public sort of the potential of what an electric powertrain can do in a car. And then for pure battery electric vehicles, although the GM EV1 and the Tesla Roadster, and indeed the Mitsubishi Imev were all launched before the Nissan Leaf. In a way, they were each a slightly niche car. So the EV1 was a sort of a particular um, sort of early adopters car. The Tesla was a two-seater sports car. The Miev was a, it's a very small urban car. The Leaf was the first EV that really was an acceptable alternative to any other petrol or diesel engine C-class five-door family hatchback. And so that's why, for me, the Nissan Leaf is the game changer. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for exploring trendsetters and game changers in today's episode. Please join us for episode seven, where we explore fuel systems in automotive manufacturing. Thank you for joining us today on the Talking the Talk podcast. My thanks to Mike Keane, and you can check out his consultancy on mikekeane.ie. Then check out irelandmade.ie to view our back catalogue of videos celebrating stories of Irish transport, past and present. We look forward to welcoming you onto our next episode where we further explore the origins of automotive technology. You can find us on YouTube or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe and tell your friends. Bye for now. <music>